0: Let me go ahead and start with a prayer. Father God, we, we thank you, God. And uh, just as we get into your word today, Lord, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. That's why we're here. Um, we want to hear you speak. We want to know you with more clarity, with more sincerity, with more depth, with more passion. Father God, so I pray that today, that we would not just hear with our natural ears, but we would hear with our spiritual ears, Father God, that we would hear their hearts, Father God. And where they are callous, where they are hard, I pray that you would soften them. Where they are hurt and broken, I pray that you would mend them. I pray that you would strengthen us today through your word and through each other. And so we give this time to you and we expect great things Of you because you are a great God and so we honor you today we humble ourselves under you under your lordship in your name we pray all of this amen all right if we want to go ahead and stand we're gonna hop into Colossians the second half of chapter 1 if you're new here today we're so glad you're here exciting things Um, we hope that today you'd be blessed and encouraged by the, the word, the music, but also by the community, um, by the, the people who call here at home. And so we are in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, you guys can be seated. Thank you very much. So, um, I've played years of soccer, But I've never coached. It's a whole new thing for me right now. So uh, this is Addison's second year in soccer, and they needed help. And so I was like, I'll help. I'll coach. And um, it's interesting. (laughs) I've had to remind myself very quickly, uh, there's things you just take for granted. You just come to assume when you're dealing with people who have been playing soccer for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, you have a child who literally is at the base level. And you have to think through things now differently. Like the things we're teaching, the skills, the, the opportunities for them to practice these skills. It's all different now. It's, it's very low-key, if we can say it that way, you know? So, um, so I have had to restructure the way I think about soccer right now, teaching a bunch of fifth-graders. And uh, it's it's been good for me. It's been challenging, but it's also it's it's challenged me in my patience. I'll be honest, <laughs> trying to teach uh, eight eight you know kids how to to handle a soccer ball and within control is hard. It's very hard. But I love it. And uh, but what that means is that I've had to learn and to kind of think through the way I communicate the information. So it's still the same game. It's just the way that I'm teaching it to a child versus somebody who's in college who's got better skill, it's, it's different. I have to communicate differently. And so we're going to find out in Colossians, that's what Paul's doing. And we're going to kind of address some things, but that's really what he's doing here. And so I think the first thing we need to figure out is this. Where is Colossae? So I have a map up here. Um, it is located, is that map up there? It is located in Asia Minor, which is known as modern-day Turkey, okay? So it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus and roughly about 10, 13 miles from Laodicea and Heropolis. So Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae were known as the Tri-City, okay? Colossae was a prominent city. It was a great city. They were actually known for their Colossian wool, okay? It was a really good textile, and people sought after it. But there was an issue. So what happened is this, is there's a, a trade route going north and south. And at one point, that trade route got shifted to include Laodicea, even though Laodicea's not there. So it, so once that trade route shifted, all of a sudden, Laodicea and Heropolis started to grow. And Colossae began to diminish. History shows that this letter uh, was written around 60 A.D. So Paul's writing around 60 A.D. And between 61 and 62 A.D., there was this massive earthquake in that area, destroying all three tri-cities, okay? So this is a Roman province, but it's very, very influenced by Greek culture and thought. So what happened is this, is the, the, the earthquake... Destroyed the three cities, Laodicea rebuilt itself without the help of Rome, and Colossae never regained. They they say that they they can maybe kind of find like a small camp outside of it, but at that point the the city's gone. So if you think about this, um, you have a city who's on the decline. Really not being known for much now. Other cities are growing. And you have a letter being written to them. And nobody knows that in the next year or two, they're going to be utterly destroyed. We don't know if it happened and, and Paul hadn't heard from it yet. We don't know like, how, the, how the time frame worked out. But what we know is that the city was on the decline, soon to be destroyed, and Paul and God feel it important enough to write a letter to this community. I mean, that, that to me blows my mind. Because here's the reality is this, is that when we think of cities that receive letters, they're big, prominent, important cities, aren't there? They're, they're things that are happening. They're kind of epicenters. But for this one time, this letter is written to a small community that is literally on the way out. And in fact, the message of Colossians today, even as much so to back then, throughout of history, has been probably one of the most important messages being written. And it's so vital to who we are today as a church. And that just blows my mind. Question is, did Paul ever plant this city? No, Paul didn't plant this city. In fact, we can gather that Paul never even got to Colossae. Didn't get as far. He probably only got as far as Ephesus. So the connection between him and this church is actually kind of interesting. It's through a man named Epaphras, okay? We don't know much about Epaphras. We know that he was a guy who was saved. He heard the gospel. So our our, our, uh, assuming could be that he at one point had gone to Ephesus, heard Paul preach, came under the gospel, and then went back to his home in Colossae. And what's interesting about this is, is, is um, a lot of times we can get stuck in the rut of, of reading Paul, right? Paul's a huge giant of the faith, isn't he? Like, like what the guy did for the gospel in that time is huge. And it's easy to read, and we kind of get into this rhythm, right? So, so Paul goes into a city, finds a synagogue or finds a meeting place, preaches the gospel, plants a church. Stays there, builds it up, and moves on. That's kind of his rhythm, right? Goes in, preaches the gospel, plants a church, builds it up, moves on, right? Paul didn't do that here. What I love about this is is that a man, really not known, here's the gospel. He takes that gospel and a heart for his people, and he goes back and plants a church. Stop and think about that. Really a no-name guy is changed by the gospel, and he has a heart for his people, and he goes back. So that's Paul's connection. It's both sharing in the gospel, but it's also this, this guy, Epaphras. And I love that, because one, let's just stop and think about this, is, is, is this. Is, is, it's Like I said, it's easy to get into the rhythm of the way that Paul did things, and so you assume you, you got to be this giant. You got to know all your Your ins and outs of the gospel. you got to be prepared and educated and all this stuff to be able to make a difference. But the reality is this, is that it doesn't take that. Yes, Paul was used mightily by God, but don't ever underestimate who you are in Christ. Like, stop and think about that. Don't underestimate who you are in Christ. It's not based off of your money. It's not based off of your connections. It's not based off of your skills and ability and knowledge. It's based off of the living Christ in you. And I love that. So never think small of who you are in Jesus. So there's some things I want to address in Colossians to kind of set up a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. And it's this. So when we study Colossians, there's a back and forth battle right now. There's, there's people who say Colossians was not written by Paul. It can't be Paul. And so the, there's really two main reasons why they believe it can't be Paul. And the first one is this. is because when they look at the writings of this letter, and they compare it with the writings of other Paul's letters, They say, this is too smart for him. This is actually above his knowledge. Like, he doesn't talk about these things anywhere else in Scripture. And so really what they're saying is that Paul just stopped growing in knowledge. He he, he was kind of dumb to this. All right? So that's the first argument. The second argument is this, is that the, the, the things that he's using, the terms that he's using in the letter, the language, isn't. Paul line. It isn't how he would normally write. There's different words and different themes. And so they're saying, this, this can't be Paul. But let me just stop here and, and address this because one, we in Orthodox Christianity hold to the faith that, that this Bible, the Scripture, is what? It's God-breathed. Right? It's God-breathed. This is, this is God's self-revelation of Himself. What he wanted to be known is what he made known. So first off, if you're to say that this is beyond Paul's understanding, this is beyond his depth, that might be. But that's not beyond the God who moves men to write. So if God wanted to have Paul write on these topics, guess what? He's gonna have him do it. He's gonna move his heart. The second thing is this, is that we're going to find out that, that this argument about the terminology, the words that are used in this letter that aren't necessarily Pauline, if you stop and think about this. So there's a, a commentary that I was reading in the Interpreter's Bible commentary, and they, and they brought up this fact that back then, okay, they didn't have this idea of heresy like we have. Like today, we have this kind of structured concept of heresy. So we hear something, we say that's heretical, because we have a standard now. We, we put it against something and we say that's not matching, so it's heretical. Back then, they didn't really have that yet. Everything's in flux. Everything's still being grown. Like, there's this new thing called Christianity, right? And, and, the, and the word's being passed around and talked about. And the gospel's being made. And, and, and we have to think about this. Remember, it's, it's a very heavy Greek culture. That means very heavy philosophy. Like Aristotle and Plato, there's just this heavy... Um, focus on knowledge like, like Travis pointed out last week. They loved knowledge. But you also have, think about it, you're, you're, you're an Asian minor, so there's, there's all these other cultures, and the gospel is being put into these other cultures. And maybe let's say that culture worships ancestors. And all of a sudden, you have somebody who says, the gospel, I, I believe the gospel, I believe it's true, and they bring it on, they accept that gospel. But they don't get rid of other things in their family, in their culture, because that's just who we are. So now, you have to have a whole new conversation of, well, Christianity and and ancestor worship can't go together. So this, this is the first time we're having these conversations. So everything's in flux right now. Okay? So Paul is, yes, he's engaging in new conversations right now. Because there's this this philosophy that's happening in Colossae, this empty deceit, and he's addressing it because it hasn't been addressed before. So yes, he's got to use new words. He's got to come up with new terminology. He's got to think through things a little bit differently. But also we're going to find in the letter that he uses the philosopher's terms against him. So they're not necessarily Pauline words. but What he's using is he's saying, this is what this person's saying And this is why it's wrong. So yes, some of it isn't natural to him. So Paul is being stretched in his thinking right now. This letter is super pertinent to today. Because as much as we love to believe we have grown as people and as a society, we're still asking the same questions the ancients have asked before us. Who are we? What is our purpose and how should we live? That's philosophy right there. That is the core of philosophy. And so Paul tackles a very different and a very destructive teaching among the Colossians that opposes the person and work of Christ and the resulting effect it has upon the life of the Christian. So the next question be is, this: what actually is this Colossian heresy? So let's just kind of run through this really quickly. So up front, we really don't know much about it. So you'll hear a lot of people who preach on Colossians, and they immediately run straight to Gnosticism. Well, the, the issue is just Gnosticism. But the problem with that is, is that Gnosticism wasn't actually established at that time. There were parts of it that were kind of circulating around, and there were actually hints of Gnosticism in, in pre-Christianity and like early Jewish culture. But the actual established Gnostic belief wasn't established until a few centuries later. Okay, so we have an issue. It can't be just Gnosticism. So if you've never heard of Gnosticism, I'm going to just kind of give you an idea what it is. It's a very broad term. It's a very broad belief. Um, it's kind of like if you were to look at Christianity, you can have very extreme Pentecostal, and you can have very, very extreme, uh, um, like, reformed, like, like, you know, so, so, and everything in between. So here's, here's the idea is Gnosticism. There are, there are a few things that kind of rise to the top that all of these sects share. And it's this. The true hidden God is removed. He's hidden and he's removed. He only resides as pure spirit in pure light. So that would be a major tenet of Gnosticism. The true God emanated out of itself various other gods... One, eventually being evil. And this evil God created earth as a mistake. So this, that's what they're believing at this time. And because of that, matter is evil. And that led to two different things you could do. So if matter's evil, you could either indulge in it because it didn't matter. So you'd have very, very indulgent people. Or you'd go to the totally opposite extreme and you'd leave a very aesthetic life. Very, very heavy religious burdens on yourself this led to some people calling themselves Christian Gnostics and they held to a belief called docetism which promoted the idea that Christ only appeared as having a body and others pushed against docetism and said that's wrong and so what they said is that Christ's spirit entered his body but left at a certain point to see what's happening, all this philosophy, all this back and forth push, and then Christianity, the gospel is put in the middle of that. So, um, and, then, and then the other big thing about Gnosticism is this, is that, that some people contain a spark. Remember, some people, not everybody, but some people contain a spark within them, and that through special knowledge, they alone can be saved. So it's not just Gnosticism. There's also hints, we'll find out as we get more into the letter, that there is parts of what's called mystery religions. And mystery religions were a various select groups of cults that sought to explain life and purpose. They are often known for their secrecy and initiations, and they offered salvation through special knowledge. They also utilized ceremonies and mysteries, and they contained very little doctrinary teaching, but were more focused on this experience in your heart or in your life. And they even were known for the practice of angel worship. It's very mysterious, not much known. But we also see in this heresy of Colossian is a little bit of Judaism. People suggest somewhere around 50,000 Jews living in Colise around this time. So there's a very heavy influence of Hebrew, right? So it seems that somehow this Judaism is being pulled into it and, and, and they're pushing the, the, the traditions and regulations, like the food regulations and things. So they say, you've got to live this way, you've got to abstain from that, you've got to do this. So it's very Judaistic in, the, in nature in some ways. And the last thing that we can gather from this heresy is that it's very aesthetic. So very, very much abstaining from things. Okay, and when we would talk about, think like monks. Like, like they're, they can be very brutal upon themselves for the purpose of religion. So that's what we can get from this heresy. It's, a, it's kind of a mutt. It's a lot of things. So as we get into this letter, we're going to come across Paul addressing these various beliefs as they were posing a great threat to Colossians. So I want to start in verse 15. And it says this, the very first thing we come in contact with is this amazingly beautiful expression of worship from Paul. Remember, he's in prison right now. Okay, he's, 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 he's writing this letter. Somebody's dictating it for him, right? He's writing this letter, and he goes through 1 through 14. It's all about thanks, right? And it's all about this knowledge, right? And then 15 starts, which is really a poem. It's a hymn. And if you kind of stop and think about it, Just put yourself in that mindset right now. I picture Paul being so worked up what he's been saying in the previous 14 verses about the grace of God, about the gospel, that he literally just bursts forth in song to God. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, I mean, he is excited at this point. He is praising God. And I love that picture of Paul. And in fact, what's so amazing is he, this is probably one of the most profound statements we have of Christ in this hymn. See, his theology, it didn't shift. So Paul was known for um, preaching a lot about salvation, soteriology, right? That was, his, that was his thing. He loved talking about that. But here, we see he, he shifts to what's called cosmology right he's enlarging it's not just salvation but he's growing salvation to the cosmos he's saying it's not just about here but salvation is bigger than we think so he's enlarging it it's not that he changes but like I said he grows his understanding so knowing a little bit about what this heresy is, the beliefs that are being taught in this philosophy, we can understand why Paul needs to address the topic of preeminence of Christ. Because this heresy diminished Christ. It brought him down. And we'll find out later that this whole idea of angel worship Really is uh, termed celestial hierarchy, and the idea was this: is that they that you would you would work through mediators to salvation, you would pray through angels. That's why he talks about thrones and dominions and powers and authorities. This is the angelic host, and so what he's doing is he's addressing this idea of angel worship. And so this philosopher, we don't know if it directly came out and said, "Hey, our belief is better than your Christian belief." Or they could have said, guess what? Our philosophy can include your Christianity. We're not sure. But Paul takes the moment to put Christ where he should belong. He elevates him. Right? Not just over the church, but over all of creation. And so in verse 15, we have Paul elevating Christ. And what I love about it is this declaration of Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, right? Gnosticism dealt with various gods being created, right? And so in some ways, Jesus was just a God, a lesser God. Or they would say, you need to pray through the angels, and so Jesus isn't as important now. And so what, G- what, what he does here is he says, no, he is the image of the invisible God. He is God, the firstborn of all creation, and that idea of firstborn isn't that he was created. It's preeminence, it's it's rank, it's order. So it really is addressing his sovereignty. See, Paul seeks to establish Christ's rule over everything because one of his divinity, he's God, and two, his rank. The word image in the Greek is icon, and it's literally what it sounds like, icon, okay? And it's not just the idea of likeness. It does portray the likeness. So when you would remember in, uh, when Jesus on the earth and, and they said, hey, who's, whose image is on this coin? And they would say Caesar's. It was the, the icon. Whose icon is this? Whose representation is this? Whose likeness is this? Okay? So it was definitely likeness. But the word also means manifestation representation it's also it it means the revealing of core attributes see christ represented the infinite god to his finite creation and this combats that the idea that the old testament was different right we hear that a lot today don't we well the god of the old testament he's not the same he's he's different i like i like the new testament god he's better he's loving and kind. He's not evil, right? No, this is combating that. They're the same God because Christ revealed God. And Paul also argues that Christ was not created but he was separate from his creation. Look at some verses here. In John 1:18, it says this, For no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. I love that verse. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And in Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, it says, In the last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance love that the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression or representation of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word he is everything God is he has made an infinite unknowable God known then Paul moves into addressing this persistent Greek thought of causation. Remember, philosophy is huge back then, right? So in philosophy, there's this thing called causation, all right? So it was first uh, introduced by Aristotle, and it's the idea that this, everything has a cause. So there's a primary cause, there's an instrumental cause or effectual cause, and then there's a final cause. So this is what a lot of these guys discussed back then, cause. And so Paul's use of this word were created in 15, okay? It's the aorist tense. And I love this. It's the aorist tense. So in 16, it means this. It is a definite, effective, one-time event. It, so it was everything was were created. Definite, effective, one-time event. That everything totally had a created in a particular moment through christ a definite particular moment it's not just that the things that we see naturally but the unthings there's a definite moment but then he does this he continues and he says all things were created through him and for him now here remember the first were created were aorist a definite effective moment in this were created, he shifts to what's called a perfect tense. So it still means this idea of an action completed in past time. Okay, it's still a definite thing, but we can actually better say it this way: that all things stand corrected or created. So the best way to describe it this way: um, so if if I have a door that is open. Okay, so in the, in the perfect tense, when I shut the door, it was a definite moment, right? I shut the door. But because it's perfect tense, it has an ongoing effect. So when I shut the door, in this moment, the door remains shut. It's continuing. So stop and think about this, that Christ, who is the image of God, created all things through him, and for him. He created in a definite moment. He did that. But it also continues to remain created in him. He sustains. He didn't just create and back away and say, I'm done. He actually, at the very core level of everything you created, still maintains it and keeps it going. He sustains it. And do you see how Paul is elevating Christ right now amongst this this philosophy? He is just making him huge. And so here we have Paul's application to the philosophy of causation. He says Christ is the primary cause. And Christ is the effectual cause. And Christ is the final cause. He created it. He sustains it. And it's for him. And that goes back to our original questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Everything was created through him, for him, and by him. I know I'm kind of going quickly here. Moving into Colossians 1.17, see, we have not only Christ preeminent as over creation, we also have him preeminent over the church so we see his natural creation the heavens and the earth and everything in it we also see the spiritual creation his church his people it's not just because of his external role but it's because of the work he did on the cross William Barclay puts it this way. He said, he is the head of the body, that is, of the church. The church is the body of Christ, that is, the organism through which he acts and which shares all his experiences. Everything the church is, everything the church does, everything the church experiences is because of and in and through him. Just like creation, he sustains us. See, today, Christians really like to enjoy talking about his love, don't we? There's a lot of songs about it. It's on the tips of our tongues. And you know what? That is a really good thing because Scripture talks about his love, about the true heart of God, and it is loving kindness, and we should talk about that. But often we get stuck there, and some people even get offended at the thought that he didn't do all of this for us. See, some people like to talk about his love in the way that makes us great, right? He loved us like we were worth loving. The reality is that's not the case. Look at some passages I have up on the screen here. It's Isaiah 48, 9-11 says, For my own namesake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Or take John 12, and it says this, My soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And Ephesians 1:4 says this, "For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be to holy and blameless, in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, for himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory." Of his grace. And in verse 12, it says, So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. And in verse 14, it says, The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And just one more. I love this one Isaiah 43 6 through 7. It says, I will go to the north, give them up, and say to the south, Do not withhold from them. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. Christ is preeminent in all things. He has the right to rule. He has the right to speak into our lives. And we are to be obedient. And that's hard, isn't it? The application is hard. And you know why? Because since the time in the garden, when the serpent lured mankind with his lies, we have all struggled with the same condition and the same desire, and that would be that we would be our own sovereigns. Right? That's what he got at. That's what we want right now. We want to be in control. See, Satan played to the heart of mankind by insisting the right to rule was ours, and not God's. He also suggested that God was deliberately keeping us from our own full potential. And that's important. Catch that. It's important because as we get more into the letter, you're going to start hearing words. Paul starts talking about the mystery of Christ. And what he's doing is he's addressing these ideas of this philosophy. He says, if you just get this special knowledge, you'll be saved. Or if you just reach within yourself, then you'll be saved And they pulled Christ down. And Paul says, no, it's not about that. Christ needs to be exalted because he is preeminent over everything. He is sovereign over everything. We owe everything to him for his glory. And so as we see in the start of this letter, Paul is combating these very same attitudes that we deal with today. And as I wrap it up, I know it was a lot. But I want to talk about something here. It's, 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 um, it's the word called contextualization. So if anybody has ever been a missionary or knows a missionary, this is probably one of their biggest struggles. Okay? So it, contextualization is this. Is, is taking the idea of something within context of something else. Okay? So it would be this. So if I have the gospel, the unchanging, immovable truth of the gospel— It has to be applied in different ways. So let me say it this way. The way that I present the gospel to a businessman on Wall Street is going to be different the way that I present the gospel to, say, a child somewhere, right? It's going to be different. I have to contextualize it to who I'm ministering to. But the thing is this, is that there's a very fine line. We don't want to change the gospel, right? We don't want to make it easy for somebody to accept because we've changed it. Well, I'll just take a little bit of this out, and, you know, they have a hard time with that, so I'm just going to remove this and make it a little bit more palatable. We don't do that. We keep the gospel the gospel, but we find ways to move the gospel to their understanding. Just like I have to take my knowledge of soccer and apply it to kids now. I have to contextualize it. And under this idea of contextualization, there's two sides. There's what's called obscurantism, I know they're funny words, and syncretism. Obscurantism and syncretism. And so obscurantism is this. It is the process of obscuring the gospel with a lesser important issue. Let me say that again. It is the process of obscuring the gospel with a lesser important issue. Let me give you an example. The best way that I can think of describing is this. So if you have somebody who isn't saved, okay? They're not part of the church. And so they look at the church and they automatically assume, they say to be Christian, you have to be Republican. Do you see that? Do you see how that could obscure the gospel? Because now all of a sudden, they don't want to be Christian because they don't want to be Republican. And so we don't realize it we haven't set out to intentionally say, well, to be a Christian is to be a Republican. But what happens is a lot of times some of the values kind of blend together, and so a lot of Christians end up being Republican, but not always. So we obscure the gospel with something lesser. Okay? So, syncretization is the other, is the opposite extreme. It's this, it is the mixing Christian gospel with various beliefs or practices, thus changing the core gospel message. So, it's taking the Christian gospel, and it's saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but you know what? I really like what they say over here. And so, I'm going to take that and put it with my Christian gospel. And then, you know what? I really like that practice over here, and I'm going to make that a part of it. And by the time we realize it, it's no longer the Christian gospel. It's different. So the best way to say it is like this. like, um, So if I have the Christian gospel in me, right, and all of a sudden I say, you know what? I really like that's the idea of meditation. I'm going to start yoga. I'm going to start meditating. But the idea of yoga meditation, Middle Eastern practice, is very different from the idea of meditation from Scripture. So eastern middle eastern practice of meditation is to literally empty yourself until there's nothing left. But from scripture the process of meditation is fill your mind with the word of God. You can't have both. So what happens is this when you start applying different things it's no longer the gospel. It's now your own creation. And so do you see what happens in this Topic of Colossians is Paul's dealing with both And He's saying there's dish, definitely issues of obscurantism. And there's definitely issues of syncretism. So in some ways, some people are going around saying, hey, guess what? To be a Christian, you got to adhere to some of these Jewish laws. you got, you got to abstain from that. So they're obscuring the gospel by practices. And then the other side of it was, guess what? It's okay. You can include these things into your faith because it doesn't hurt it. And so the Colossians are struggling right now they're saying I don't understand what do we do and Paul is getting at the heart of this idea of obscuring and syncretizing saying this this is the gospel nothing else hold to that And so as I close now I want to ask us church this One, you're going to ask yourself this personally, and you're going to ask as a church. One, how are we obscuring the gospel right now? What are we doing that we don't even realize that is keeping somebody in our neighborhood, in this area, in this church, from actually coming to the true gospel? And so you need to ask yourself, where in my life am I a little blind right now? Or what are we doing as a church that's keeping people from it? So when somebody drives down this road and they look and they say, I can't go there because of X, Y, Z, what are we doing? And the other question is this, what are we actually syncretizing with our Christian faith? What are we accepting that doesn't need to be there? What are the programs? What are the experiences What are the things we're listening to? What are the truths? It doesn't mean that we don't interact with these because Paul interacted with these. Paul is known for interacting with people of different beliefs. He doesn't shy away from it. He addresses it. But he doesn't absorb it. He doesn't make it his own. So the question is this. What are we doing that obscures the gospel? And what are we doing that muddles the gospel? That changes the gospel? And so as we wrap up here. I just want you guys to just take a few minutes. Just close your eyes and and, and ask God. Pray. Spend some time. Say, God, search my heart. Where am I? What am I doing? What needs to be pruned? What needs to be changed? What needs to be purified? Can we do that? Let's take a few minutes and just pray.